This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. And, uh, you know, there really is kind of a, a change in the national mood. And I think, I think you feel it too, don't you, dear listener? I think a lot of people are very optimistic that we're going to see some changes for the better in the months and hopefully years to come. So we're going to try and lighten the mood a bit for today's program by uh, delving into some comedy, that being that of The Onion. Last year, The Onion came out with Our Dumb World, a very Onion-esque type atlas of the world. And as it happens, it's out in paperback this year. We'll be talking with editor Joe Randazzo about uh, this very funny effort of theirs. We pile up a lot of material for this program, and this may be uh, the show in which we're going to try and debulk quite a bit of that, particularly in some science topics, which we have neglected in this fall election season. We're pretty pleased to bring you uh, Freeman Dyson on last week's program. And if you missed that, it, like almost every show we've done, is available on our archives, which can be found at radioparallax.com. We enjoyed uh, talking to Freeman Dyson so much that we gave him two segments on last week's program, which just set us, unfortunately, a little bit further behind on our uh, regular mix of materials. Even as it was, we cut about 15 minutes out of that interview, but the complete version should be available soon on our website. In the weeks to come, we expect to, uh, to get quite a bit of help from some of our friends. National Geographic film documentarian Michael Bana will return to the program to talk a bit about uh, this fellow we mentioned in an obit uh, some weeks back, Frank Mundus, used to take people out and kill sharks. Uh, Mike Bana's going to have a few things to say about uh, those sort of numbskulls. And while we're talking to uh, a guy in New Zealand, we'll probably go across the Tasman Sea to, uh, to take up again with Peter Donahue and talk a bit about anesthesiology. We've been, talking to, we've been meaning to talk about uh, the controversy over who invented that fine discipline, and uh, Peter should be uh, just the guy to help us with that. Lisa P. swears she's going to talk about the obituaries of uh, Yuri Nosenko and uh, Robert Mayhew. That'll be in the next few weeks. Sean Minton should return to talk about sports in its various forms, um, and I'm not even sure what is specifically about sports, but we know we know we can count on Sean. We might get a postmortem from the about the elections from uh, a candidate David Lynch, defeated by Doris Matsui here in the Sacramento area, and we may go to Bob Newman for a recap on the national scene about what happened this election day. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to present an open letter to a president-elect Obama about what we think uh, needs to be done in this country. And I hope uh, I'll be joined in that effort by someone we haven't heard from in a long, long time on this program, one of our legal uh, experts, Stephen Alexander. I know this program has gained quite a few listeners up in the Chico area, so we're hoping to uh, bring a surprise guest on this program on a, on a, on a field trip to be in the not-too-distant future, up to um, Chico. And, you know, while I'm up in Chico, I'm going to see if I can't can get my brother-in-law to come on the program and talk about what's happening in the field of waste management. My understanding is that with the collapse in the world market, the Chinese are not taking a lot of our recyclables like they used to. 
I'm sure Tom's going to know a thing or two about that. So what the heck? I'm going to tap into experts in my own family. And as always, we expect to hear from our good pal, Will Durst. In a humorous vein, we also expect to hear from Gordon Uncle John Javna, the author of the, the editor, I guess, of the Bathroom Readers series. They have a new volume out. We're sure that's going to be good for a laugh. And we hope that we can bring you local comedian Jack Gallagher. Very funny man. He's uh, agreed in principle to talk to us in the past, uh, but d- due to my falling down on the job, I haven't, uh, I haven't nailed that down. I'll, I'll see if I can't do better. Anyway, we've got more folks in the pipeline. I can't, I can't even remember all of them, but, uh, but uh, we will do our best to bring you the interesting types of guests that uh, we, we know you enjoy. But let's, uh, let's get this, uh, this show going today with, uh, with On This Date in History. Our date today is November 13th. It was on November 13th in 1715 that the Battle of Sheffamuir in Scotland ends in a draw. This brought to an end the hopes of the Jacobite supporters of the 15th Rebellion, which, in case you forgot, <laughs> was an attempt to restore the Catholic Stuart monarchy in Great Britain. Which might serve as a, as, a, as a reminder to us that the fact that in the United States of America we have religious freedom is something that has saved us a lot of bloodshed over the years. A separation of church and state is a very good thing. On November 13th in 1861, newly elected U.S. President Abraham Lincoln pays a late-night visit to General George McClellan, whom Lincoln had recently named General-in-Chief of the Union Army. The general, who had called his boss nothing more than a well-meaning baboon, refused to see him. McClellan would later be relieved of his command by Abraham Lincoln, who, exasperated by his cautious general's uh, refusal to act, who at one point asked him if he could borrow the Union Army since McClellan didn't appear to be using it. McClellan would seek revenge by running against Lincoln in the 1864 election, which he lost handily to the well-meaning baboon. And Mr. McClellan points out that that actually is not a bad band name if you're thinking about, uh, about that. The Well-Meaning Baboons. Attention, Rick Ely. On November 13th in 1916, during World War I, the First Battle of the Somme ended after four months of terrible fighting with more than one million casualties on both sides and nothing much accomplished by either. And it was on November 13th in 1953 that Mrs. Thomas J. White of the Indiana Textbook Commission calls for the removal of Robin Hood's name from the state's school books because, she said, he robbed from the rich and gave to the poor. That's the communist line. While she was at it, she also attacked Quakers for their pacifist beliefs. Our quote of the day comes from Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, who once said, Nothing shows a man's character more than what he laughs at. <laughs> Our quip of the day comes from Zsa, Zsa Gabor, who was quoted as saying, Personally, I know nothing about sex because I've always been married. Uh, actually, Mr. Marillon, that was Ava Gabor that started, started in Green Acres. Our stat of the day comes from the Washington Post that notes that the Bush White House is now spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on official portraits of cabinet secretaries, military brass, and other appointees. Among the portraits commissioned is one for former Secretary of State Donald Rumsfeld. 
The cost, $46,800. The joke of the day is as follows. An elderly couple travels to the Holy Land. The man, known for his long-time crotchety behavior, dies during the visit. The wife's informed that it'll cost $5,000 to ship the body back home, but it will be possible to bury him at a cemetery in the Holy Land for only $200. The wife asks the funeral director to send him home. Man says, ma'am, I have to ask you, why wouldn't you take advantage of such a good deal? She said, 2,000 years ago, a man died here. Three days later, he was alive again. Frankly, I can't take the chance. All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. It was a good week last week for lefties with the election of Barack Obama. Obama's left-handed, meaning that uh, six of the last 12 commanders-in-chief will have been southpaws. Note, only one person in 10 in the general population is left-handed. And any neuroscientists out there that have some thoughts on that matter, please send us an email at info at radioparallax.com. It's an odd one. Even more odd, perhaps, John McCain's a lefty, too, so no matter who won uh, last week, (laughs) we're going to get six out of the last 12. It was, on the other hand, a bad week last week for the Iraqi government, which got no nibbles on its offer to sell Saddam Hussein's 269-foot yacht. The luxury craft, valued at $30 million, is outfitted with swimming pools, gold-tap bathrooms, a secret escape passageway, and several barely-used rocket launchers. And finally, it was kind of an ugly week last week for British transportation officials, who sent an email to a Welsh councilman asking for a translation of a road sign they wanted to erect. The sign was to read, No Entry for Heavy Goods Vehicles. When the reply came back, the officials dutifully erected the road sign that said in Welsh, I am not in the office at the moment. And I can't resist the Week magazine's Only in America file, which I think I will read verbatim. A Chicago man has been elected president of the United States despite African heritage and the Islamic middle name Hussein. Barack Obama, age 47, says there were moments he doubted his own candidacy given the nation's racist history. Nevertheless, Obama somehow received some 7 million more votes than his opponent, enough to make him the 44th U.S. president. Said Charles Kinsey, 48, an African-American mechanic from Los Angeles, Lord, I just voted for a black man for president. How about that? And from the miscellaneous file, we have the fact that apparently Joe the Plumber's 15 minutes of fame are not quite up yet. Joe, whose full name is Samuel Joe Wurzelbacher, has begun working on a book about his rise to fame. We've said it before in this program, and I think it may be time to say it again. We think that before someone writes a book, they should read one. But apparently last week, Joe the Plumber hired a Nashville publicity firm to secure him personal appearances and product endorsements. Publicist Jim Della Croce said there are already hundreds of offers, but he denied rumors that Wurzelbacher is launching a music career. He's not doing a country record, said Della Croce. That was presumptuous. 
We're going to have to bring our own Evo the Plumber back to comment on that. And from the insane file, we have the following. Apparently, Madonna tried to control her marriage by posting rules for husband Guy Ritchie on the wall of their New York apartment. That's according to the New York Post. The couple's marriage contract, drawn up after they visited a counselor two years ago, obliged Ritchie to, quote, enrich his wife's emotional and spiritual well-being, study Kabbalah with her, and avoid fights by saying, I understand that my actions have upset you. Please work with me to resolve this. Well, what can you say? Marrying Madonna? Is there a clear case of let the buyer beware? Anyway, there's one comment about the election that I cannot resist making as I look around uh, uh, the desk here with all of the files we'd amassed for, you know, issues related to potential voting fraud, etc. on election day. I want to cite an article from USA Today, not intended to be ironic, but I think worthy of comment. Headline, Political Snapshots Proved Sharp. Subheadline, Most Major Surveys on 2008 Race Accurate in Capturing Where Voters Were Headed. First sentence, the pollsters got it right after all. Noting, for weeks, analysts such as Steve Shire, a political scientist at Carleton College in Minnesota, had questioned whether Election Day results would expose deep flaws in the daily drumbeat of surveys showing Democrat Barack Obama consistently ahead of Republican John McCain. Would there be a Bradley effect? Would there be a repeat of New Hampshire's primary where polls suggested Obama would win, but voters delivered the state to Hillary Clinton? Well, in a word, no. It turns out, not surprisingly to Radio Parallax, that most major polls came close to the outcome. Rasmussen reports joined Pew in calling it on the money, while the battleground poll, Zogby International and Gallup, which surveys with USA Today, came within a couple percentage points of the actual outcome. Gallup's final estimate of likely voters had Obama leading 54 to 44. So I think the legitimate question to be asked is, if polls all of a sudden appeared to be accurate this time, was the problem in the last two national elections the fact that the polling went haywire or that there was something wrong with the vote count? We hope that the new administration takes a very very detailed look back at what's happened in the past couple election cycles and see if it can't um, take some steps to make sure that in future elections, uh, there's no repeats. And speaking of elections, uh, the, 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 the ballot measure that seems to be reverberating in California was Proposition 8, the passage of a constitutional amendment to ban gay marriage. This has gotten a little bit ugly. Apparently, vandals have been, uh, been, been targeting Mormon churches. The Mormon church, of course, spent a great deal of money in support of Proposition 8. Apparently, gay and lesbian artists are calling for an artistic and audience boycott of the California Musical Theater after learning that its artistic director donated $1,000 to the campaign that backed banning gay marriage in California. At one point, the board of directors of the California Musical Theater were about to have an emergency meeting to deal with this, which to me seems completely inappropriate. The private donations of an individual hardly warrant an emergency meeting in this correspondent's opinion, and they they did cancel that meeting, I think, fearing uh, that it would look bad. And it did. We'll have more to say on this topic in future shows. Let's take a minute to talk about a, a, a subject uh, wherein uh, politics meets history meets economics. 
The sinking of the Titanic has to be one of the, well, probably the best-known shipwreck in history. You wouldn't think that an event that took place in 1912 would still have a, a startling twist to it, but it turns out it does. The Titanic, of course, sank two hours and 40 minutes after hitting an iceberg, but it shouldn't have. There should have been none of the 1,500 victims that perished just 70 minutes before the rescue ship arrived. But the matter is explored by Brad Matson in a book titled Titanic's Last Secrets, The Further Adventures of Shadow Divers John Chatterton and Richie Kohler. What Chatterton and Kohler did was get a hold of some archives which had been hidden for many decades that uh, revealed what the initial investigations of the sinking of the Titanic told its engineers. It turns out the ship was constructed with a flimsy hull and rivets that were too skimpy. While the Titanic was being built, a, a crash off of Nantucket between a couple of luxury liners, uh, well, resulted in both vessels sustaining far greater damage than that which would uh, sink the Titanic. But one of the ships made it to New York on its own power, while the others stayed afloat for 38 hours with all 750 passengers being rescued. So why did the Titanic down, go down so quickly? Well, in 2005, divers uh, working with the Matson line found some sections of the ship's bottom and uh, confirmed what the engineers knew back in 1912. Flimsy hull, skimpy rivets. And it turns out in this sordid tale that uh, the hull was originally supposed to be a quarter of an inch thicker and the rivets an eighth of an inch thicker than what was finally used in construction. Why'd they do that? Well... It reduced the ship's weight by 2,500 tons. That will enable her to cross the English Channel faster than the competition. And it turned out that this came about because uh, J.P. Morgan had bought controlling interest in a handful of British and American shipping companies. And, by the way, the United States federal government supported him with subsidies and tax breaks. This caused the British government to then subsidize the Cunard shipping line, which is one of the only companies that resisted Morgan's takeover effort. Morgan wanted a faster ship, and uh, the engineers, the people that built it, uh, decided to satisfy their big customer. Said author Matson, if J.P. Morgan wanted a boat made out of paper mache, they would have made him a boat out of paper mache. Happily, he didn't ask. So, a look in modern times showed that this is what happened. But the real shocker out of all of this is that uh, the archivists discovered that, the, uh, that they knew within months of the tragedy why the ship had failed. But absent a cover-up in the matter, the lawsuits of the victims' families would have bankrupted the Titanic's owner, foremost among them, J.P. Morgan. So instead, government investigators pinned the blame on the ship's captain. So when people tell you, that uh, conspiracies are impossible to maintain. <laughs> you can say, no, they're difficult to maintain, not impossible. And this one lasted 96 years, which is good enough for most purposes. I did note a couple of weeks back that the last American survivor of the Titanic, who was two months old when the ship went down, sold some memorabilia to pay for her nursing home costs. And happily, apparently, the sale went really well. She generated more money than she expected. But isn't it interesting that as the last victim dies off, this comes out. 
It's also interesting that in Newsweek, the same, uh, the same edition that, that, that talked about this matter of the book and the Titanic, we'll look back at 1901 and how J.P. Morgan stepped in to fix the financial crisis happening in the country at that time, which I think makes an interesting juxtaposition to the following item from last week. J.P. Morgan said last week it would modify the terms of more than 400,000 mortgages to prevent foreclosures, according to Robin Seidel in the Wall Street Journal. The modified loans would carry lower interest rates, smaller principal amounts, or other more affordable terms. It's interesting, isn't it, this partnership between J.P. Morgan now and then, wherein the government uh, reaches out to help this enterprise? Well, one thing's for sure, we'll have a little bit of extra cash left around to help with those mortgages because, you know, they, they didn't pay out too many funds to those victims of the Titanic. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Let's take a short break and come back and talk to Joe Randazzo about Our Dumb World. <laughs> 